0: From Missio Church, uh, come and be with us today. I'll never forget meeting Levi in 2008 at the Text and Context right uh, conference at Marsh Hill Church out in Seattle. Uh, Levi was, uh, is, and was at the uh, is from and was at the time uh, serving on staff at Summit Church. Uh, down in southwest Florida in the Fort Myers area. Now, I just was there last Sunday worshiping with them and being embarrassed by Jamin Stinziano uh, while I was there, but nonetheless welcomed well and prayed for. And I just want you to know that Summit Church, while I was there, prayed for renovation. Uh, this uh, larger congregation that's been going after uh, what our convictions, our shared convictions, for over a decade in that a region of southwest Florida, and it's amazing to see how we participate with what God is doing all across the world, right? Do you think about that? Like, we think about what God is doing in North Syracuse and Baltimore. Yes, we should be very local in our thinking, but understand this, that God is at work in so many bigger ways and beyond this as well, and the most amazing part of that is that we participate in those things across the world, and even so, we participate in what God is doing in our city, and we're excited about what God is at doing in and through Missio Church. But I, I got to be honest, uh, Levi's wisdom is questionable, right? He is a Steelers fan, so we praise God for that, right, church? Uh, and so we welcome him as such, uh, a Steelers fan. But again, being in Southwest Florida and wondering why you ever came up here uh, to Syracuse, New York, especially as the snow falls this morning. Like, what was going through your mind that God would bring you here? Uh, but you know what? That's the thing that I love about Levi, and this is a true, genuine statement. I'm going to tell him to come up for We're going to pray for him. Is that the reason that Levi uh, finds himself in Syracuse, New York, is because of his heart for the shared vision and mission that we have in the world. And uh, Levi came with a desire to serve on a team that would go after a particular geography and live into the convictions that we have that whatever God is going to do, he's primarily going to do through all of Christ's people. And uh, he's, what he's going to do, he's going to do uh, through really decentralized structures and, and people gathered in saturating geographies and leveraging his time and his leadership to really go after a place. Now, originally you are from the Northeast, so we will tip our hat to you in that regard. So, But let's welcome him. And let's pray for him. Uh, This is a man that really shares our convictions, that loves the Word of God, that is committed to him, and uh, yeah, I'll stop embarrassing you in that regard, but we are ecstatic uh, to have you here. Let's pray for him as he preaches, and trust that the Lord is going to speak through him. Father, we do come to you in in the name of our Lord, and we pray that you would just speak uh, through Levi, Uh, remind him, like all of us here, that we are not performing Uh, in any way, shape, or form, that we are serving your people. Give him that peace and that confidence that it is your word that carries life-transforming power. And so give him the ability to just preach it with clarity. We uh, welcome him in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Thanks, Mike. Um, That certainly was embarrassing, but uh, that's what you do. So, uh, verbose, kind... Um, embarrassing all of those adjectives. Uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 3, go all the way through verse 17. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17. I am happy uh, to be here this morning. It's a great privilege to um, just worship with you. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the close, close partnership that Missio has with Sister Church, uh, Renovation Church, um, it's great to uh, just be worshiping the Lord together this morning. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17, um, I'm going to read the entire passage, and if you could follow along with me. Hebrews 12, starting verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. We pray with me. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that understand, incline our hearts to this truth, Father, that we would have um, a correct and appropriate view of your discipline in our lives, I pray that um, you would give us a willing heart to obey these truths found here, um, and the encouragement to endure and to consider Christ and to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So, Father, we entrust this time to you, and we love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So... um, If you're anything like me, when you hear the word uh, discipline, most likely it has a negative uh, connotation. Some negative things come to mind. Perhaps... Uh, uh, maybe you think of something like a picture that's shown here where uh, there's a kid uh, being spanked I'm not sure if that's his father or a teacher or what um, but there's some discipline obviously this child has done something wrong or possibly you think of maybe some public shame or scorning with this next picture and you see this kid in a dunce cap where he's in the corner or, or possibly even in front of the entire class and I love what he had to write in cursive on the board I will be good I will be good. Good. I will be good. I will be good. Or maybe when you think of the word discipline, you think of uh, trying to corral a child that has just lost his mind. Uh, possibly, you know, in the cereal aisle at Wegmans, where um, he wanted Fruit Loops, but you decided you wanted to get him Honey Nut Cheerios, and so there's this breakdown, and so you're embarrassed, and you're trying to regain control of the situation, and you hope that nobody is seeing while there, uh, while you're doing that. And so you, we think of discipline. Possibly, if you're like me in these type of contexts, and yet uh, the Scripture's view of discipline, particularly the Lord's discipline, um, isn't quite as narrow or negative as we typically uh, think of it. The the word discipline in the Scriptures, it's much more uh, holistic than that. It's much more uh, well-rounded. The word discipline um, actually means to literally instruct. It's this idea of training and correcting and educating and instructing. It's that idea of, of discipline. It's a holistic word. So it's not necessarily what we see in the scriptures related to our passage and. Hebrews chapter twelve, where the Lord's discipline—it's not talking about, you know, a God who is weak in trying to regain control of a situation. Think of the crying kid at the Wegman cereal aisle. It's not uh, a vengeful God trying to enact double payment for sin by bestowing His wrath upon us. Think—it's not a public spanking from the Lord. It's not a public shame or scorning. But in the Scriptures, it has a much more positive connotation, and it's this idea of training, instructing, correcting, and educating. It has a much more positive sense. And so this morning, uh, really the, the conclusion, this main idea of this passage, what I want us to consider is that discipline is a good thing, a blessing from the Lord for our maturity and growth. That discipline is a good thing. I want us to get rid of that, those negative connotations, maybe that our feelings won't act or what the culture says, but it's a blessing from the Lord for our maturity and growth. Now, you've been in this book for uh, several weeks now, possibly a few months, and so just as a way of reminder, in the context here, in the book of Hebrews, uh, you have these early Christians who are facing intense, significant and real persecution for their faith. They are experiencing hardship because they are followers of Christ. Hardship like uh, they're losing their jobs. They're being kicked out of their home. Their family is alienating them from the larger society. They're being thrown in prison. And apparently, we'll see in verse 4, no one has been martyred yet, but that's probably not that far off the horizon, all because they have publicly identified with Christ. And so there's this real temptation among these early Christians to say, you know what? We're, it was good in theory, but... I want to, I kind of cash in. I'm done following Jesus. And they're being tempted to actually go back to um, their old Jewish heritage and customs, to go back to the Old Testament religion. And so you'll see all throughout the book of Hebrews, that's why the the series is called Greater Than, because the author of Hebrews is putting together this very complex and sophisticated, but, but ultimately pretty simple argument that Jesus is greater than, Everything else. Chapters 1 and 2, he's greater than the angels. Chapters 3 and 4, he's greater than Moses and and Joshua, though these huge historic Old Testament figures. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is greater than all the Old Testament priests. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. He's greater than the new covenant he mediates is greater than the old covenant. And now we're seeing that, that in the midst of this persecution, you have a word of encouragement, a, a, a encouragement, a, an instruction to persevere, to not give up, to endure. And so it's in light of all of this that the author of Hebrews is going to shed a, a unique and biblical perspective on the hardship that they're facing. And again, mind you, the hardship is particularly persecution because of their faith. Though the applications from this text, I believe, apply to all kinds of hardships and trials and difficulties that we face in a fallen world. But it is important to note and nuance that this is directly related to their profession of faith. And what he says in verse 3, Mike already um, read this at the call to worship. He starts off with this um, imperative, consider Him, consider Him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. That's important for them to consider because they likewise, because they have identified with Christ in this visible community known as the church, they are also enduring from sinners significant hostility. And he said, remember Jesus so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In the midst, there is this very real temptation for them to grow weary and faint-hearted and to abandon the faith. And they said, the author of Hebrews writes, consider him, remember Jesus. He endured these things, so then why should we be surprised when we identify with him that we would be exempt from them? We're not exempt from them, we experience similar things. And then he says in verse four, in order to give some perspective in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So he's basically saying there aren't a lot of bodies lying around. So have some perspective on the suffering. There's significant hostility, but there have been no martyrs yet. And then he encourages them with verse five. And he's saying, have you forgotten this exhortation? This is by way of reminder. Have you forgotten this exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he's going to quote Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. It's written right there. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he received. So what he's about to do is he's about to paint this persecution, this hostility at the hands of sinners, their difficulties and trials and tribulations. He's about to shed some light on it and and basically say, this is the discipline from the Lord. And remember, have you forgotten? He's treating you as sons. And what you're experiencing is the Lord's discipline. So let's look at four things throughout this text that we see about the Lord's discipline. Remember the main idea, discipline's a good thing, a blessing from the Lord for our maturity and growth. And here's the first sub-point. Discipline is not to be minimized or cause us to grow weary. That's what the quote from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 is warning against. That when we are experiencing hardship, even when we're viewing it as the Lord's discipline, remember, read discipline as instruct, correction, training, education. When we're experiencing that, there are two potential pitfalls that we as Christ followers can fall into. One is that we can minimize the difficulty that we're going through. We can minimize the work that God is doing as we experience that hardship. And then the second one is we can grow weary. So let's focus on that first pitfall for a moment. It's important that we be mindful of that. He writes, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Yet that's the very thing that we are tempted to do when we experience hardship, when we're experiencing difficulties. We want to regard it lightly. We want to minimize it. And typically we have this view of hardship where um, we want to get through it as fast as possible we want to be done with it. We want to focus on pleasures. We want to focus on um, lilies and not difficulties and all of those things. And so we want our lives to be organized and neat and orderly. And when chaos comes, when difficult circumstances come, we want to be done with it as soon as is possible. Yet the scripture is reminding us That it's in the midst of these difficult times that the Lord does a unique work where He can mold us and shape us and mature us in ways that we can't when it's all rainbows and lilies. C.S. Lewis says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. So he's saying, don't don't treat it lightly, don't regard it lightly, don't minimize it. So that's one potential pitfall that we would want to minimize it. And then number two, he says, but don't grow weary by it. That's still verse five. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. And that's the other pitfall, that we can be overwhelmed by it, and we can become paralyzed by the discipline of the Lord, by the difficulties, challenges, or the trials that we're experiencing. Now, uh, the Scriptures don't typically nuance primary and secondary causes in the way that I think you and I would like. The Old Testament and New Testament writers have such a robust view of God's sovereignty and His goodness that it doesn't bother them when the Scriptures don't, don't nuance the primary and secondary causes. So, the secondary cause here, we've already seen in verse three, is hostile sinners. They are experiencing persecution at the hands of hostile sinners, because they have identified with Christ. And those are the ones who are persecuting them. That's the secondary cause though. However, there's a primary cause that God's sovereign hand is over all of this, and that's what the author of Hebrews is reminding them of. Now, we've got to be careful. We know that James tells us that God does not tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted. This isn't God doing evil or anything like that. But what we see is, is that these hostile sinners, they what they intend for evil, God in His sovereignty and in His providence and in His goodness will use for their good. So what the hostile sinners intend for evil, losing their jobs, throwing them in prison, uh, kicking them out of society, God, primary cause, will use for their good. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. That God allows these difficulties, will use these difficulties, and will redeem these difficulties. That God allows suffering, He'll use suffering, and He will redeem. Redeem the suffering that you and I face living in a fallen world. I've heard it said, and this wouldn't go well on a Hallmark card, but we're either um, in a trial, coming out of a trial, or getting ready to go into a trial. Like that is life in a fallen world. Yet we should take heart and find great comfort in the fact that God knows what He is doing. He's sovereign He's good and He has not lost control and that Satan or hostile sinners or, or this world is not doing more than God has allowed. And I Think of Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deep. Psalm 147, verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives all of them their names. Have you ever tried to count the stars? I live in the city of Syracuse, so when I see a star, like I see maybe two or three stars, and then I realize one of them is actually a plane. I don't see that many stars, but when I go to my grandparents' house in West Virginia, they have a 1,500 acre far, farm. I just look out, and the sky is just bright with stars. Is that picture that he knows them all, he's counted them all, and he, he has names for them all. Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, he numbers the very hairs on your head. Now, for some of us, you can actually count the number of hairs on our heads, and, and my number is decreasing significantly, it seems, as the days go by. But he knows us, and He's sovereign, and He's good. Uh, I hear, I've heard John Piper uh, use this illustration before, that God is not an ambulance driver. He's not lost control and trying to get it back. Um, he's not an ER doc coming in for an emergency, trying to fix some stuff or reattach an arm. God is a, is a surgeon, planning, plotting with great skill and with great precision, with infinite wisdom and skill and holiness. God is in control and He is good and He is leading and He's guiding and He's molding us and shaping us to the image of His Son. And this passage reminds us that He will use suffering and hardship in order to mold us and shape us. So the author of Hebrews is saying don't don't treat lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't don't be so quick to get out of the difficult circumstance and don't grow weary by it for the Lord is doing a unique work in that. And I think of the great uh, comfort found in John 16:33 where Jesus reminds us like this should be our perspective in this world you will have trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. Secondly, we see that not only is discipline not to be minimized or cause us to grow weary, but discipline shows that we are children of God. It, it gives evidence to the fact that we are children of God. It demonstrates the objective reality that you and I are children of God. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Like, Why do we have to endure? It's for discipline. It's for the Lord's instruction and education and training and correcting in us. God is treating you as sons. And that that word son there is not specifically just only talking to males. He's talking about the children of God. You and I who are co-heirs with Christ, adopted children of God. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? you child, you were a child once. Our parents, they loved us, they disciplined us, they educated us, they corrected us, they trained us. If we were loved by them, they corrected and trained us. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not son. And if your parents did not discipline you, if they didn't train, educate, correct, inform, Then you're illegitimate children. And if you're illegitimate children, then you don't experience the pleasures and the benefits of being a part of the family, nor the protection of the father. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. This is the greater than, less than type argument where he's saying that we've had earthly fathers and they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. And though it was painful in the moment, we now respect them for us. We respect our parents for their discipline, for their training, for their educating. Now, we don't always, um, as parents, if you have children, we don't always discipline our children in the best way. Uh, sometimes we're selfish, we're short-tempered, and overreact, or we think one way is better only to realize that another way would have actually been more effective. But, but we, though we are evil, we, uh, though we're earthly parents... We recognize this, and and even though we fail at times, our parents are still respected, and our children will respect us someday for the discipline. How much more should our Father be honored and glorified, who doesn't have a short temper, who isn't sinful, who isn't self-centered and selfish, but is infinitely holy, infinitely good, infinitely wise, and working for His glory and our good, and those two things go hand in hand. Uh, Just last night, um, I'm reminded of my shortcoming as a parent where I'm playing hide-and-go-seek with my kids. I have two kids. My daughter, Sophia, is five, and my son, Judah, is three. And so we're playing hide-and-go-seek. Judah goes into the closet and is trying to hide in the closet, and he pinches his finger. So he's, you know, screaming bloody murder, and so Sophia runs from her hiding spot, comes, and wants to see what's going on, and I'm a little flustered by it, so I pick him up. I'm trying to see how bad the damage is, and um, I tell Sophia, we're going to take a timeout. We're not playing any more hide-and-seek. Like, I just need you to just be calm. I'm kind of dealing with this, not really acting that calm in the moment, and then all of a sudden, Sophia runs away, and I'm thinking, like, that, Little chump, like she is going to hide, and I told her we're we're playing timeout. So I'm already thinking, while just crying, like how I'm going to uh, lovingly lay into her whenever I see her again. And so so I start screaming at her, like, Sophia, we're not playing, Sophia, we're not playing. All of a sudden, she comes back with a band-aid to help the situation for Judah. And again, I'm just thinking like I'm a moron, like I'm so short sighted, I'm the worst parent ever, like. Like, and so, um, so I uh, was screaming her name somewhat loud, and so I apologized to her in the moment, and sorry, I misunderstood. But I'm not infinite. Like, I don't know her motives. I don't know what's going on. So of course, there's going to be times where I discipline, I train, I educate, I instruct in a way that may not be their best, in their best interest, though I'm trying. But how much more our Father, that's the argument, who is infinite, who is wise, who is holy, He's not going to make those mistakes. So even... If we had an earthly father or an earthly mother who did not discipline us in a way that we could perceive as for our good, we have a father who who does and who will discipline us for his good because he loves us. It shows us that we are his children. And and it's very important for us to note because this is a significant temptation for us to face when we're experiencing suffering and hardship. That we can view the suffering or hardship that we're in as as God's wrath for some past sin. You know, maybe, um, I don't know, you do something, you're aware of it, you confess it, you know it wasn't right, and um, maybe a few weeks later you get a flat tire or you get into a fender bender or... Um, you know something bad happens with one of your kids and immediately you're drawn back to that sin that happened a few days or a few weeks ago and you're like, bam, I knew it. I deserved that. I shouldn't have done A because I knew that something bad was going to happen to me because of it. I got the flat tire because I sinned against the Lord. I deserved that. And I think that's what our thinking is. We, we view discipline as God's wrath, but God is not cruel where He does not require double payment for sin. All of God's wrath For our sin has been completely and totally absorbed on the cross of Jesus Christ, so that for those of us who are His children and who are in Christ, not a drop of His wrath will fall upon us. So, your suffering is not God's wrath. If you are in him, there's certainly consequences for our sin, but it's not the vengeful wrath of a God requiring double payment for our sins. It's the loving hand of a father molding, shaping, correcting, educating us that we may share in his holiness. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, we must realize that there is a great difference between God's discipline and his judgmental punishment. You'll see this quote on the screen. As Christians, we often have to suffer painful consequences for our sins, but we will never experience God's judgment for them. This punishment Christ took completely on himself in the crucifixion. And God does not exact double payment for any sin. Though we deserve God's wrathful punishment because of our sin, We will never have to face it because Jesus endured it for us. Neither God's love nor his justice would allow him to require payment for what his son has already paid in full. In discipline, God is not a judge, but a father. Ray Ortland Jr. says that in God's discipline, it's not that God is angrily taking from us, but it is that God is lovingly reinvesting in us. Matthew 7, 9 through 11, Sermon on the Mount it says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a certain? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him we have a holy good father who knows what we need and who is lovingly reinvesting in us as we'll see in a moment though it seems painful while we're going through it may we have a robust enough view of God's goodness and his sovereignty and Uh, our justification and our standing as sons and daughters of God through the finished work of Christ, that we are not tempted to view what we're experiencing as a double payment for any sin. God's discipline, in fact, shows, it proves, that we are children of the Most High God, adopted sons and daughters. Thirdly, we see that discipline is for our good, that we may share His holiness, and it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's read verse 10 again. For they, he's talking about our earthly parents, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He, God, disciplines us for our good with this outcome in mind, that we may share His holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So he disciplines us. Remember, when we hear that word discipline, read instructs, trains, corrects, informs, educates. He does those things for our good that we may share his holiness. This idea that, that God cares more about our holiness than our happiness. Now certainly God cares about our happiness, but that word happiness, it, it's temporal, it's, it's transient, it's subjective, it's temporary. He's saying, trust me and have joy, have deep down confidence that I am in control and that I am working for your good and my glory. He wants us to become more and more like Him, that we would truly be free and that we would live life to the full. Now, we know as parents that we can't give our kids everything that they want. They they lack the perspective that we have, and we're more concerned, if we're a good parent, about their long-term development, their long-term trajectory, and their good. Now, we're not perfect in this, but we certainly know more than our young children do. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Big Daddy, it was an Adam Sandler movie that came out maybe a decade ago. But in that there's a six year old that's dropped off at his door and, and he thinks the kid is his. And so what he does is he just vows that he's not going to be like his dad. And so he's going to try this new parenting technique. And basically, he's going to let the six-year-old do whatever the six-year-old wants. So the six-year-old names himself Frankenstein all of a sudden. And the six-year-old's dressing himself and putting like underwear on the outside of his clothes and he's eating ketchup packets for every meal. And as the story goes on, as the movie goes on, Adam Sandler character realizes, okay, this isn't really what's good for the kid. So I need to start disciplining him. I need to create some boundaries. I need to instruct him. I need to educate him educate him. He actually needs to take a bath at least weekly, like those type of things. And that's really what the story is trying to get at, but in a humor, uh, in in a way that's filled with with humor, it's pretty funny. You know, even my daughter who's five, I mean, if she had it her way, uh, she's eating Hershey Kisses, M&M's, chocolate cake, chocolate ice cream for every meal until she's throwing up. And then once she gets that temporary relief, she's going back to all the chocolates. But but for me, I mean, I know that that's not good for her, so we're not going to do that for every meal. And there's going to be times where I just need to say no. You can't do that. Even um, last night, like she wants to go outside. Still, she's still thinking it's 70 degrees, but it had dropped like a billion degrees in the span of 30 minutes. So she's wearing a dress, she wants to wear sandals. Like you cannot go outside in that. You're not allowed. I'm just picturing like it's gonna be a lot of conversations in the future. Me saying, No, you cannot leave the house in that. But she's five, it was appropriate, just not appropriate for the weather. And so so she wants to go outside and she doesn't understand. I'm like, no, you put pants on, you'd put a coat on, you Pretty soon need gloves and she didn't want to do it. And so I'm telling her, no, you can't leave the house in that. Now, uh, it would be great if she just looks at me and she goes, Father, thank you for your loving hand in this. I recognize, Father, that I lack the perspective that you have and that you are working for my good and that your ultimate goal is to provide for me, and to care for me, and to protect me, and that you want to reign me, you want to draw out loving obedience in me, that ultimately, that I would be a daughter of the Most High. Amen. I don't expect her to say that. If she did say that, that would be awesome. But I just don't expect that of her, and yet I need to train her and educate her. Though I'm imperfect at it, that is my goal. And in a similar way, though with much more infinite wisdom and goodness, that is the loving hand of the Father instructing us and guiding us. If I wrote my own story, if I'm in control of my destiny, I am six foot six, I'm the starting quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I've won seven Super Bowls already, and I have so much money that when I have good service at a restaurant, I'm just like tipping Lamborghinis. Like, here's some keys. Like, thank you for that great service. Like, that's my story. That's what I want. But God, in His infinite wisdom that I may share in His holiness, has determined not to give all of that to me as much as I would like it because there's a higher priority in His mind, and that is that I may... Glorify him, but he's working for my good. He's a loving father who's reinvesting in me. He's not angrily taking from me. So I was just studying and preparing for this. I came across um, this prayer from an old hymn that, that I pray would be our posture as Christ followers, and that would be the communal posture of this expression of Christ's people. Listen to this. It goes like this. I pray that we would have so much trust in the Lord that this this would be our heart. It says, Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, to be what you require. May we have such a healthy, biblically rooted and grounded, robust view of God's goodness and His sovereignty that we can trust Him enough to pray this, Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, and to be what you require. May that be our posture to the Lord because we trust Him and we know that He's working for our good. And then lastly, we see that the discipline, the Lord's discipline, His correction, training, education, that it happens in the context of Christian community as we strengthen, warn, and correct one another. Verse 12 starts with the word, therefore. Like this is a conclusion that he's coming to after reminding us of an appropriate view on the Lord's discipline. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of a joint, but rather be healed. He teaches us all of this so that we can lift our drooping hands. This is a picture of like a marathon runner, you know, and near the end, it's just downcast, the countenance, I mean, just exhausted and the hands are drooping and the knees are weak and you're wobbling this way and that way. And he says, in light of all of this, be strengthened, be encouraged, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, for we can take heart that our Lord is working even in the midst of these difficult trials and difficult circumstances that we may share His holiness. This is for our good. Then he says, strive, this is verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So he's saying in the context of community, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He continues on. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So now he's saying that if if people go on and they allow these, these difficult circumstances, these trials, to allow them to reject Christ, go back to their old ways. He's saying you have a responsibility as part of the Christian community to see to it that others do not fail to obtain the grace of God. Meaning that see to it, it, it literally means to watch continuously. It's implying that there's some appropriate holy meddling in the context of Christian community that, that you and I need one another in order that we would not fail, sorry for all the negatives in there, but that we would not fail to obtain the grace of God. Positively, we would obtain the the grace of God and the glory of God when other brothers and sisters press into our lives and encourage us and strengthen us and help us lift up our drooping hands and help us strengthen our weak knees and make straight paths for our feet that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It says, make sure that there's no bitterness happening within the community, that no one's bitter towards someone else, because by it, then the whole community could become defiled. The whole community could become unclean, that it could spread like a cancer in the midst, that there's bitterness and, and strife and backbiting and gossip within the community that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. It's getting after the fact that that you and I need one another. Even this idea of discipline, you've probably heard the term, church discipline. And when we hear that term, there's usually, maybe we think of like excommunication or we think of that formal, corrective church discipline. But even historically, the term church discipline was a holistic term. It's an umbrella term that that says anything that trains and educates and disciples Christ's people, that's church discipline. Preaching of God's word is church discipline. Small group ministry is church discipline. But when we think of the word, we think of formal corrective church discipline. But in the Lord's discipline, if he's going to help mold us and shape us that we may share in his holiness, we need one another to do that. Our faith is very and deeply personal. But it's not intended to be private. And he goes on and he, he says, you know, "See to it that no one is sexually immoral like Esau." And that's an odd like Old Testament thing to throw in there, but if you recall the story of Esau, in, his mo- in this moment, he sold his birthright for a single meal, meaning he was very fleshly. He only thought about what was in front of him. His feelings drove, his hunger, these cravings drove him. And so he was willing to trade in the inheritance for a single meal. Later, he regretted it. Though he sought it with tears, he was not able to obtain The inheritance. He's saying, don't be like that. Don't allow a short sighted view of your circumstances or your difficulty and your desire to get out of them so much that you cash in everything that God's Word teaches. You cash in on Christ and you go to something else. Instead, have an eternal view. Have an eternal view and recognize what God is doing. And we need one another in order to help us see this through. We need one another to strengthen our weak knees, to lift up our drooping hands, and to make straight paths for our sin. It's a reminder that if there's any unconfessed or unrepentant sin in our lives, that we're playing a very dangerous game because like Esau, we may feel the consequence of that sin. But if we continue in that sin, unrepentant, serious, public sin, over time, we then therefore may show ourselves to not be the true recipients of the eternal inheritance anyway. So so he ends this passage. He starts off with an encouragement, but he ends it with the, with the severity of, like, don't mess around with this. And so we need to have a robust and healthy view of God's discipline. And I pray that we would be a people, that this would be a congregation, that we see the loving hand of our Father reinvesting in us, and that we wouldn't view uh, our suffering, though it is painful. The writer of Hebrews acknowledges that. And, and we're not like looking for these things, but when we experience them, we can trust that God is at work in a unique and powerful way, and that we can depend on other brothers and sisters to encourage us and to call us out when we need, need be, and they can correct us and train us and instruct us and rebuke us. And praise God that you are part of such a community, the visible community of Christ, where people, I mean, I've heard it even twice this morning that this is a healthy community that loves the Lord and loves other people. And so I pray that, that you would invest in these people that you call brothers and sisters in this expression and that you would be strengthened and encouraged by those whom you worship and do life alongside. We pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Um, this encouragement and this reminder. And I pray that we would have a healthy view of your discipline, not, not the negative um, view of it, but that, that you are a good and holy God who is molding us and shaping us, that, that we may share in your holiness, that you're using the things that are happening in our lives that we may, it may yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness. I thank you for the encouragement specifically that these brothers and sisters are to me and to our congregation at Missio Church. And I pray that uh, this congregation would remain faithful to you and uh, to the truths that we discussed today. Father, we love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.